My name is Yaakov, and I am a Jew. I live in the village of Bethany near Jerusalem more than 2,000 years ago. I deeply believe in the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I feel the presence of my God as I go about my daily business. And more than anything, I want to honor my God by keeping the commandments of the Torah. I want to be a righteous man. Yet sometimes, sometimes I fail. Sometimes I yield to selfishness and greed and pride and anger. Two weeks ago, I I sold a plot of land to a new man in our village. Baruch moved here and he wanted to farm and I had a plot of land that looked good. And property is scarce in our village, so I was able to demand a high price and he paid it. What I didn't tell him, though, is there's a reason I never farmed this land. Beneath that good-looking topsoil is a dense layer of rocks. And it would take hours of back-breaking labor to clear it and make it able to be planted. Yet, Baruch never asked, so I never told him. He'll find out next spring when he tries to put in his seeds. At first, I was priding myself on making a sharp business deal, but now, now I'm consumed by guilt. I feel guilt that I took advantage of him. You see, I was greedy, and God expects better of me. I let my God down. I let my neighbor down. I let myself down. I sinned. And then to make matters worse, I'm angry at myself and I have now turned that anger on my wife, Rose. And I've been rude to her and I've said hurtful things. Even though I know God expects better of me. He wants me to love her and honor her and respect her, but I let God down again. I let Rose down. I let myself down. I sinned. I need to make this right. I want God to forgive me and I want the people that I've wronged to forgive me. So so I know I need to confess and repent, but oh, it is hard. I need to apologize. And it's hard. It's hard because my stubbornness and pride get in the way. I don't want to have to admit that I was wrong. And yet, It's the only way to wipe the slate clean and start fresh. So I spend some time in fasting and prayer. And I tell God, I was wrong. And I know, I know that my God hears my prayers. Yet my heart still is heavy. I know that I will not be completely free until I make the required sacrifice. Fortunately, it's Passover time in Israel, and my village of Bethany is only a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. So so I join thousands of other worshipers, and I go into the city of God and make my way to the temple. And I bring my prayer shawl with me so that I can cover my head in humility as I pray with the priest. 
when I get to the temple, I head to the marketplace where the sacrificial lambs are sold. And oh, the temple is just crowded with throngs of worshipers. And we're shoulder to shoulder as we jostle our way through. And I have to wait a long time for my turn. Finally, I get my chance to talk to the merchant and I pick out a beautiful, young, flawless-looking young lamb. And then I walk with my lamb over to the holy place near the altar. I recite the prayers of confession that the priest asks me to pray. I listen as he prays on my behalf to God. And then I watch as he slits the throat of my lamb. And the blood pours out. As I watch, I feel a twinge of sadness because it's my fault. The death of this lamb is my fault. He died because of my sins. And yet, as I watch this lamb give its life, as I listen to the prayers of the priest, I feel a growing sense of joy. Because I know that God accepts the sacrifice of this innocent lamb who died in my place. And I am so humbled by this. I head home with a lighter heart. I head home with a willingness to lay aside my pride and make things right with Baruch and with Rose. And I'm going to refund Baruch's money. I'm going to humbly apologize to my wife. I have the strength to do this now because I have confessed, because I have sacrificed, because I have been forgiven by God. Because God has forgiven me. And once Baruch and Rose forgive me, I know that I will again be righteous. I will be in a right relationship with God. I will be in a right relationship with my neighbor. I will be in a right relationship with my wife. And I will be at peace within myself. I will be at peace and I'll be righteous because I have confessed and sacrificed. So that's what confession and repentance look like in the days before Jesus. For Yaakov to confess and repent, he had to pray and sacrifice. For us to confess and repent, we just need to pray. The difference is Jesus. When he died on the cross, he became our sacrificial lamb. One sacrifice for all time. That's why we remember his death, and that's why we honor his death, by taking communion each week. No more animal sacrifices. Just prayer. We get to sit in the presence of God and confess. It's simple. It's easy. Unfortunately, because it's simple and easy, because we don't have to expend time and energy and effort and money to make a sacrifice, we can overlook the importance of confession. We can overlook the need to make confession an ongoing part of our prayers. Or if we do confess, we might trivialize that moment and we might think that forgiveness comes when we just offer a quick basic prayer. We might say, oh Lord, forgive me for my sins without much thought or much reflection. 
Yet confession is serious business. It's serious because Jesus died for my sins and your sins. And just as Yaakov was humbled by the fact that an innocent lamb died for his sins, we should be incredibly humbled by the fact that an innocent man, Jesus Christ, died for us. And we should be grateful that his death makes it possible for us to pray so that we can confess and repent and be forgiven and get a fresh start with God. Confession is a vital part of the life of faith. It's one we can't overlook. And this morning, we're going to take a look at three different Bible passages that give us insight into the importance of confession. And we're going to see how confession can enrich our times of prayer. We'll see how confession can help us maintain a right relationship with God and with others so that we can experience the rich and full life that God wants for each of us. And we're going to begin in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, starting in verse 8, as the Apostle John explains why the community of faith needs to be full of confessing people. 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we will have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, part of that should have sounded familiar to you, because Joel Powell, in his communion thought, just gave us some great insights into a portion of that passage. And what John, the apostle, wants us to understand here, that confession is based on a simple foundational truth. We all are sinners. And we may like to try and convince ourselves otherwise, but if we do that, we're just lying to ourselves. And in fact, based on what John writes here in verse 10, if we claim to be sinless, we're making God out to be a liar as well. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a big name radio preacher, and he was talking about sin and righteousness. And he said, You know, I haven't sinned in more than 20 years. And the minute I heard that, I said to myself, you just did. (laughs) His statement was full of sinful pride. And by claiming to be sinless, he was calling God a liar. He was a sinner. I'm a sinner. So are you. We are all broken people. Now it's important to realize we don't say that simply to beat ourselves up. We say that so we can honestly acknowledge our condition and our need for God. We don't talk about sin for the purpose of condemnation. We talk about sin for the purpose of forgiveness. 
And that's why we confess. We confess to pursue God's forgiveness and we confess to God through prayer. And because of Jesus, we have the privilege to sit in the presence of God. And as we pray, we can tell God very honestly how and why and where and when we have blown it. And when we sincerely confess, God will hear our prayers because Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He is our sacrificial lamb. He is the advocate who is on our side, which is why he died for us. And when we confess, he does not condemn us for failing. He forgives us because he wants to equip us to move forward and live righteous lives. Confession is the pathway to righteousness. And when we confess, it helps us to get right with God. And it prepares us to get right with others. Confession is so powerful because it helps you and it helps me clean up the debris of our lives. And yet we also need to recognize that sometimes the debris in our lives doesn't just come from our own messes. Sometimes the actions of other people help contribute to the junk that we have to deal with. And this means that our prayers of confession cannot always be exclusively focused on ourselves. Sometimes we need to include others in those prayers. And we see this several places in the Bible, but it shows up most clearly in the prayer of Nehemiah, recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Listen carefully to how Nehemiah prays. Lord, the God of heaven... The great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Listen carefully to what comes next. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. I find this fascinating that in verse 6, in this prayer, Nehemiah confesses his own personal sins, which he should do. But he also confesses the sins of the Israelites, the other members of his community of faith. And he confesses the sins of his family, both present and past. Now, he's not confessing for anyone and everyone. He's specifically confessing the sins of people that he has a special relationship with. His biological family and his spiritual family. And so Nehemiah thinks about that relationship with those people and he confesses to personal sins, to community sins, and to generational sins. It's a very intriguing way to pray. And yet it does raise a a very important question. By confessing to the sins of other people, does Nehemiah somehow achieve forgiveness for them? No. Absolutely not. God forgives each of us when we personally confess to our own ungodly attitudes and actions. 
My prayer of confession on your behalf does not result in forgiveness for you. Why then should we confess to others as Nehemiah does? It's because this kind of confession shows God that we recognize our sinful interconnections with other people. It reminds us that we are part of a broken world full of broken relationships. Furthermore, the goal of confession always goes beyond forgiveness for past mistakes. The goal of repentance and confession is to avoid future mistakes. And when I commit when I, when I confess the sins I've com- committed along with other people as a result of my relationships, it helps me to see that overcoming those sins requires me to change my behavior in those relationships. Now here's an example. Let's suppose that I'm prone to gossip. Gossip doesn't happen in a vacuum. It always happens and only happens in community. And if that's my sin, then it would be very appropriate for me to pray this way. I could say to God, Heavenly Father, I confess that I enjoy hearing gossip and I enjoy passing it on. And I confess that this is my sin. And I confess that it's also a sin within my community of faith. And when I engage in this sin, I hurt myself and I hurt other people. So please forgive me. And please help us to avoid this temptation so we all can live as righteous men and women. I think that's an appropriate way to pray and to confess a community sin. In a similar way, sometimes you and I are prone to sin because it's been passed down through generations of our family. When I used to work with people in recovery, we found that individuals who struggled with alcohol sometimes were reproducing patterns and habits of prior generations. When we helped them identify and then confess the sins of their ancestors, it it helped to break the generational bondage of sin that led them to seek refuge in alcohol. This kind of confession isn't a magic bullet, but it can be a helpful part of the healing process as we recognize that there are things which are passed on to us that influence us spiritually. And we can pray against those things that negatively influence us. Several years ago, my wife and I were reviewing and discussing this prayer of Nehemiah, and we thought we ought to try and follow his example here. So we spent an evening talking about and praying about things that had been passed down to us from our parents and grandparents. And Julie and I saw, saw habits and patterns in our lives that were a direct result of these generational influences, some of them very good, some of them very bad. So we talked about these things, and we wrote down a bunch of them, and then we spent some time in prayer. And we thanked God for the good things that we'd inherited. And we confessed the generational sins that have been passed on to us that we had embraced. Now, I have to say it felt a little bit weird to pray like that because we'd never done it before. We simply were trying to follow Nehemiah's example. And so we prayed and we confessed and we acknowledged to God the good and the bad and the ugly. And I can't logically and rationally describe for you all of the results of that time of prayer. 
But I can tell you this. After we brought these generational influences to God, we both felt different. We felt a lightness in our hearts and in our souls. We didn't feel particularly burdened before we prayed, yet afterwards we felt like this weight had been removed from our lives. And so I believe there's wisdom in following the pattern that Nehemiah models for us in this prayer. There are times when it is right and good to confess community sins and to confess generational sins as well as our own. And we can take all of these things and we can bring them to God in prayer, believing that he will hear and respond because I believe that God always responds to the sincere prayers of his people. And confession should be directed ultimately to God. And yet there's also times when confession shouldn't only be limited to God. There actually are times when we need to confess to another person. And the reality is that sometimes confessing sin to another believer is a crucial part of being forgiven and healed. And James describes this for us in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. James writes, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, listen to this, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Effective, excuse me. Now this passage from James, in my view, is often misunderstood because we read these words sick and well and we immediately think of physical illness. Yet in the original Greek text, that word well literally means saved. It even can mean delivered. It's a very broad word, and it can apply to deliverance from problems that are not just physical, but can be mental or emotional or spiritual. And as James writes here, because he mentions sin and forgiveness and confession, I think he's primarily talking about our need to be healed from the sicknesses that can pervade our minds and our hearts and our souls, because those really are the most destructive forces that we face. Those are the illnesses that ravage us because they impair our relationship with our loving God and they impair our relationship with each other. Those are areas where we need healing. And I think James is also highlighting here that there's a link. There's a link between spiritual healing, emotional healing, and physical healing. Because the reality is sometimes our physical ailments are symptoms of deeper problems. For example, if we're full of anxiety, it's highly likely that we're going to experience some bodily symptoms. It could be higher blood pressure, a racing heartbeat, maybe ulcers. Physical symptoms that have an emotional root. 
But there's a spiritual component as well. What might happen if we were to confess to God and acknowledge our lack of trust in Him that results in such anxiety? What might happen if we embrace the peace of God that passes all understanding and let that peace drive out our anxiety? If we confess and pray like that, perhaps God might heal us, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. So I think James is inviting us here to think about healing from a holistic perspective. And as we pursue healing, he wants us to be able to lean on other members of the community of faith. He wants us to know that we can help each other be healed through prayer and confession. And so there are times when we should come to the elders of the church, those spiritual leaders appointed to be our shepherds to watch over us and care for us, and we should ask them to pray for us. And it's appropriate to do this when we are experiencing some kind of physical or emotional or spiritual sickness. And it may be really good if we confess to the elders and then receive the blessing of their prayers on our behalf. And then there also are times when it can be tremendously helpful for us to confess our sins to another believer. It's most appropriate to do that if we've wronged someone. If we know that we've wronged another person, we should confess to them. We should acknowledge our mistake and ask for their forgiveness. Sometimes, though, it can be helpful to confess our sin to a believer that we haven't wronged. And we're confessing to them because we want them to pray with us and pray for us. I think back to when I was in college, there were a handful of Christians in my dorm and we were young guys and we were struggling to try and live sexually pure lives. And so once a week or so, three or four of us would get together and we would confess the temptation that we felt. We would acknowledge the struggle that we had. And we would pray for each other. And we would hold each other accountable in love. And we found this tremendously helpful because we knew we weren't alone. And we found this tremendously helpful because sin thrives in darkness. Sin thrives when we keep it hidden. And yet we love to keep our sins hidden because we're full of pride. And we like to pretend that we're perfect people who always have our acts together. And it's just not true. And when we can humble ourselves, when we can confess our sin out loud to another believer, we bring that sin out of the darkness and we expose it to the light of God's truth. When we can do that, it is an act of public confession that helps to break the power of sin in our lives. And it provides us with strength and encouragement because we're inviting now another follower of Jesus to walk beside us, to pray with us, to pray for us, and to encourage us so that we can conquer the sins that entangle us. Now, obviously, it takes some humility to tell another believer that we're struggling, that we're struggling with lying or pride or greed or lust or gluttony 
And yet there is such power in doing so because James tells us that when we can do that, when we confess such things to each other, it's the pathway to forgiveness and healing. In particular, to the healing of our minds and our hearts and our souls so that we can live the righteous life that God desires and experience the fullness of life that he wants for each of us. You know, when I think about these biblical authors, people like John and Nehemiah and James, I like to think of them as our older brothers in the faith. And I think our older brothers have given us some very godly and profound advice. They've shown us that confession should be a consistent part of our prayers. They've reminded us that we need to confess because we're sinners. We need to confess our own sins, and there are times when we need to confess the sins of our community of faith, things that are rampant in the church. There are times when we need to confess generational sins that influence us in our lives. And there are times when we need to confess sin to each other. As we do, God will hear us, and he will heal us, and he will restore us. He will forgive us so that we can live in a right relationship with him and with each other. Ongoing confession is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I think that many of us probably take time to confess when we're here in worship on Sunday mornings as we share in communion together. That's a great time to confess our sins as we contemplate the sacrifice of Jesus. But I hope that we're not limiting our times of confession to merely once a week. I think it's great to confess during the week. In those moments when we blow it and the Holy Spirit brings conviction on our heart and lets us know that we've blown it, that is a great time to stop and to pray, to confess what we've just done, and to let God breathe his healing and forgiveness into our lives. So I wonder, what might ongoing confession look like in your life? How can you and I incorporate what we've learned from our older brothers in the faith this morning that might enrich our own times of prayer? Because confession should be an ongoing part of all of our lives. Now, what should you do if you're not yet a believer? Well, if you want to personally experience the love of God, it always starts with confession. That's always the first step. We have to begin by admitting to God that we have fallen short and that we want His forgiveness. We want Him to wipe the slate clean. But when you take that initial step of faith to get connected to God for the very first time, there's something special that we do. There's there's a unique step of faith we take. Because we need to show God that we're serious about changing the trajectory of our life. And so as part of confession, we submit to baptism. When we're baptized, we reenact the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. When we're baptized, we die to our old self-directed life and we begin a new spirit-directed life as a follower of Jesus. And it may be that 
that you'd like to take that step of faith today. If so, I want to invite you to head over to the prayer corner at the end of the service. And we'll have one or two of our church leaders there who would love to pray with you, talk with you, and help you get connected to God. This is your opportunity to confess. This is your opportunity to let the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, take away your sins and give you a fresh start so that you can experience all that God has for you in this life. Confession changes things.